Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, three doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we're putting on our feet and apparently also our heads this evening uh, with Matt and DJ. Uh, But today is our 54th episode of the Roundtable, and we are starting to switch things up a little bit. Uh, These new episodes that are going to be coming out are going to include insights. How long are you guys going to keep those on your head? The whole time. They have shoes on their head. For those, I have the the other one too, so I can do this all day. Mine's like sliding forward though. I'm going to have to go under (laughs) some neck extension in a second here. So uh, anyway, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be giving a little bit of insight into what is being tested this week during the round table uh, with kind of a preview of that shoe. And then we're going to be diving into topics that have been brought up by you guys, our followers. So drop us a line on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, in our private messaging, and we're creating a list. We actually have a bunch of them sitting in our inbox on Instagram. And so if you haven't heard back from us, that's because we haven't um, decided to put it into the podcast yet. So it's going to sit there. You won't hear back from us until we decide to put it in. So the people who have kind of reached out for today. I've reached back out to them. They know what's coming. And so today's episode is uh, inspired by Halim Kamarudin and Daniel Kramer. And so we're excited to dive into some of the topics that they brought up for us to discuss. And here we go with the round table. So to begin, um, we are going to give an intro of one of the shoes being tested uh, this week and Matt's going to bring that for us. So what do you got, Matt? So first off, please, we appreciate you guys, everyone's questions because this is why this website was created in the first place was to, and this whole thing was to create a platform to be able to help educate everybody possible to, you know, understand what you're putting on your feet or in our case, head. So I've actually got the great pleasure of testing the X-Step uh, 160X version two David has version one that he and I tested last year, actually. And I saw this pop up and I was like, hey, I want to see what version two has. Um, I had some fit issues with the first one, but it fit David much better. So whether that was a problem with my sizing or what, not sure. The X-Step version two comes in with what feels like a little bit more stack height, um, similar plate setup, but it's been a surprisingly good shoe to get tempos on. I've done, I've got 70 miles on these. Um, And again, this is my left shoe. So it's doing really well. So durable, interesting, some good, some interesting stuff that we'll bring up a little bit later. And I'll have a review of these ready to go here in the next week or so. So that's the X-Step 160X 2.0. It is a marathon racer, almost lightweight trainer based on how flexible it is. Fit is definitely better. So we'll, we'll be talking about those soon, but it's super smooth. It's like the foam is very similar to the Saucony uh, Power Run PB. And it's just different because it's just, yeah, very good ride. I've enjoyed tempo runs in this for sure. Awesome. So keep an eye out on the website. We'll be putting out that review soon. And I got the one that has two different colors in the shoe. That was like the whole reason I ordered them, actually. Awesome. 
So the first topic that we're gonna we're gonna dig into today is actually I, I didn't mention his name, but this, it's actually inspired by our own DJ Solace. So um, <laughs> so David, why don't you give a little bit of your story of what happened, and then we're gonna we're gonna go into what we're talking about. Yeah. So um, about seven days now. Yeah, a week ago today, I ran up to the top of the the mountain out here, Camino Cielo. Um, out in Santa Barbara and on the way down the mountain in about the last mile there's probably like I don't know about 400 feet or drop of so like in that last mile and it, it's not super technical but it's still like there's enough loose rocks and areas you have to watch that um, you got to watch your feet and I was saying some nice things to some mountain bikers that were coming up the mountain as I was coming down I took my focus off the ground and my foot got stuck on this rock and I went flying forward and, and sprained my ankle super hard. And, uh, where I sprained it isn't exactly the common place to sprain it, but we just wanted to talk about ankle sprains a little bit today, get a little bit of education. It happens and people are out there. You're going to roll your ankle. You're going to fall down every once in a while. Um, a little bit of education can go a long way. So that was the, that was the purpose of today's episode. Yeah. So, uh, we'll kind of just a breakdown of what we're going to do. We're doing a little bit of a mini lecture, team lecture on uh, on ankle sprains. We're going to talk about the basic anatomy of the ankle, the typical ligaments that are involved in ankle sprains, how we classify different sprains, and what that would mean for healing timeframes, return to running, rehab, things like that. And then maybe at the end, we'll talk about a couple of pearls that we have for kind of helping yourself recover well. So let's start with anatomy, Matt. Why don't you kind of kick us off with a little bit of ankle anatomy, um, maybe just the bony structures and a couple of the ligaments. Yep. So David will jump into a, a little bit more with uh, he has a netter's book. I have a model here that doesn't actually have the ligaments on here, but so ligaments I gotta, are. Um, I could do my best. It's going to be hard for me to see what yeah. I'm showing you, but I'll do yeah. my best. The top one is the lateral side of the ankle. The bottom is the medial. So I'll just kind of like do my best to. So we, I'm showing you the, the outside or lateral side of the ankle. So we mentioned a lot of these bones. We want to make sure that people understand what we're talking about. So the calcaneus is your heel bone. It's that big thing that sticks out the back. That's one solid bone. The other bones that we talk about are your tibia, which is the one on the inner side. You have two bones actually in your lower leg. Tibia is the one on the inside. The fibula is the one on the outside. Um, you get under that, you have the talus, which is the bone right in here that sits underneath those. And then a bunch of other bones like your navicular right here, the big one here, your cuboid, your, I'm sorry, your cuboid here, your cuneiforms all down the foot. And then you have your uh, metatarsals here, right? These little bones through here. The ligaments, again, are passive structures that give, they are not contractile. They're not a muscle. They're not a tendon. They're passive structures that provide structural integrity and connection points between bones. So ligaments, again, connect bone to bone. Okay. They're not mm -hmm. muscles. They're not tendons. They're bone to bone. So where some of the common, when people sprain their ankle, most common, like almost 90% of most ankle sprains are what's called inversion ankle sprains. So if this is the outside of your ankle inside, people usually go this way and they're going to stress the ligaments on the outside of your ankle. There's a couple of them here. The one that's most common, DJ, I might need that photo again, but yeah, the yeah. most common ones, yeah, is going to be the anterior talofibular ligament. Um, and that's the ligament that goes from the talus right here. And again, if you push on that bone on the outside of your ankle, that's right here, you go right in front of that. That is the ATFL. 
anterior talofibular ligament. That is the most commonly sprained one. The calcaneal fibular ligament is the one, if you go back a little bit, that sits right here, going from this bone to the calcaneus. Really nice that whoever named these actually named them for the bones and not like Joe's ligaments or something. Like it's a lot easier to remember where they are. And then the posterior talofibular ligament sits in the back right here. And there's a bunch of other stuff. There's usually a bunch of tendons. Um, There's also a bunch of things called retinaculum, which sit over the ligaments. There's lots of stuff here. Uh, The deltoid ligament is the one that is a big ligament that sits on the inside. It's very rare to sprain that because you have to do an eversion sprain going out this way. It's really thick, so it's less common. But those are a lot of the, the, and there's many more ligaments in that, but those are kind of the primary ones that get sprained usually with an ankle sprain. And the one that people usually miss that we'll also talk about is something called the interosseous membrane that sits between here, but I'll let, I'll save that. Yeah, we'll come to that one later. Yeah. So um, one, of, one of the other things that we, when we think about these ligaments, Matt talked about passive restraints and they help provide some stability to the ankle joint and those bones. The other thing that they do is provide proprioception. So as the ligament itself is stretched, it seg- sends a signal to your brain saying, hey, my an- your ankle is moving this direction. And that helps your muscles turn on to stabilize. Um, and we'll go into this further, but one, one of the uh, consequences of an ankle sprain is that you lose some of the proprioceptive capacity of those ligaments. So basically what they found is if you've sprained your ankle once, you're prone to sprain it again, which anybody who's sprained their ankle in sports is like, oh yeah, well, I sprain my ankle all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's because you never fully gain back the proprioceptive capacity of those ligaments once they're sprained. That being so, said, that's there, great... is ways, there is ways to com- compensate for that, but that's why they tend to be a little bit co- chronic. Yes. And that's where seeing someone like the three of us can be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit. I think one of the questions that people ask is, how long do I have to take off of running? And I think a lot of that question can be partially answered in how severe is the sprain? Um, so let's talk about the classifications of ankle sprains, um, kind of grade one, two, three, and talk about how long you could expect to wait to return to running after that. And, and how might you diagnose yourself in terms of how severe is this? Yeah, totally. Um, well, grade one, it, it goes in classification as you rise in the number, you also rise in the severity of the sprain. And so a grade one, it's basically you rolled it, you tweaked it a little bit, but it's okay. The, the, the tissue was stretched and pulled and it's hurt, maybe a little swollen, but the integrity of it is still entirely there. Everything is still fine. Usually healing time on that's pretty quick. I mean, people turn it around in a few days, almost always. It's like one to three days for most healing times on that. Um, obviously it's always case dependent. I mean, if you're a soccer player and you got to make hard cuts and whatever, and you don't feel comfortable doing that, it might be longer. Um, but that's essentially a grade one. It's kind of like a no harm, no foul type sprain. Yeah. Um, what they've, and what they've found from what's actually happening in the tissue standpoint is there's no actual tearing of the ligaments. They're just minorly stretched. There's no disruption, no full tears. And usually with, in this case, you'll sprain it, but it won't hurt to step on it. You'll be able to walk, not really have any problem and it won't really swell up or you won't see really any bruising. So if you've, if you rolled your ankle, it hurts a little bit, but it feels okay to wait there. Not really um, any swelling or bruising. 
you're probably in that, like, like DJ said, kind of that couple days max a week before you're back. Yeah. And then stage two, now we're going to start going into our stage grade two. We're going to start going into some, uh, some more severity here. So um, the tissue has now been stretched to a point where there is indeed a partial tear. There's some tearing going on. And whenever that happens, the body's going to undergo what's called ecchymosis. And that's a fancy way of saying your ankle is going to bruise. You're going to get some discoloration where that tear or this or passive tension that pulled it started happening or where it's pulling or putting a lot of attention to. Um, in most cases, that's going to be right on that ATFL and CFL kind of along the fibular sheath there. Um, let me pull up this guy here. So basically for most situations, the top one is the lateral. Oh man, it's hard to demo when you got two hands. Um, <laughs> basically right through here, that's your peroneal tendon coming down. You're almost always going to get it right on that ATFL or that CFL kind of coming through there. That's 90% of sprains there. I was just reading something the other day, Washington, you 90% of sprains are going to be that lower ankle, that common ankle sprain. The other remaining 10% is going to be your high ankle sprains and your, your deltoid ligament sprains. But um, now you're going to have some ecchymosis, some partial tearing. Now there is an acute inflammation phase and you, you need to respect it to some degree. Um, it's much easier said than done because obviously you want to get out there and go do things, but it's swollen, it's mad, it's bruised. Uh, and there's a partial tear. So you got to let the body lay some connective tissue down, let it, let it heal, let it do its thing. And, um, and that can, that can take a few weeks. I mean, that's an acute injury. So a lot yeah. of times the, um, the, I think the other thing in there with weight bearing is where that's where a little bit of pain will come in too, just with like, just walking around and trying to even shift weight out of there. It won't be severe, but you'll be like, that feels different than what I'm used to. And like, like David said, it's probably two weeks, like one to two weeks to be able to come back. Whereas the other one could be a couple days. This is where you yeah. got a couple weeks where you got a, a week to two weeks probably. Yeah. And your range of motion is going to be limited too, because of the swelling, inflammation, edema, it's going to be, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to have a sensation of pressure almost in that region because of your body kind of flooding all those white blood cells and that inflammatory response there. And it's going to, it's going to stiffen up on you a little bit. That's normal. Mm -hmm. And so part of our goal with rehab is to just keep it moving and to just make sure you can do what you can within reason mm -hmm. without aggravating the symptoms. So range of motion, balance, proprioception, those types of things. I can't tell if Matt is saying, listen <laughs> to him, or if he's like, no, I got something I got to say. Just raising my hand. No, okay. There uh, we go. One of the things, yes, you'll, Mr. Matt, Dr. This, Matt. One of the common things we get when patients come in is they're often very terrified to put weight on their ankle. Um, and one of the key, and we know this, and there's a, an incredible amount of evidence for this, especially grade one, grade two, is early mobilization or early weight bearing is incredibly important. Obviously, you don't want to be going and running really hard on it, but you need to be walking on it because long term, putting gentle pressure through there will help maintain some mobility still walking on it appropriately don't overdo it will help maintain mobility and keep muscles activation there because at this point you're trying to minimize atrophy or range of motion loss as as dj mentioned so you do need to be moving on it not necessarily running but you need to keep walking on it and utilizing it so it doesn't get stiff or you start don't start losing muscle strength it's really important for long-term outcomes Yep. Should we move to grade three? 
we're going to circle yeah. back to more stuff with all yeah. these, but great grade three. Why don't you take it, DJ? Yeah, great. Grade three is what most people refer to as a tear. So if you're looking at someone who has a ACL tear or an MCL tear in the knee, just, just for reference, that would essentially be a grade three sprain. You, you tore it. Um, depending on what ligament it is, what your goals are, what you want to do, they don't always repair it. It just depends on what you're doing. So like in the case with the knee, it's like the PCL, they hardly ever repair the PCL. Um, but they almost always, well, not even the ACL. Some people, they don't. Um, I'd say most they do, but it depends on what your goals and what you want to do are. There are certain um, people called copers that can handle not having their ACL repaired and getting back to activity. But there are some very strict guidelines on who can do that and who cannot. Sorry. Right, but that's getting back to activity too. Yeah. I mean, that's just a conversation for another time. Yeah. But yeah. like, because not everyone's going back to activity either. Yeah, but um, but that's basically, that's probably the easiest analogy I could make because most people aren't going to go and say, oh, I tore my ATFL. Like you're not going to hear that very often, but you will hear, oh, I've torn my ACL and they did a repair. So basically grade three is now a tear. It has full thickness. It's, it's gone. Um, you can do a couple of things for it, but it depends on, that's when you're probably going to be at the doctor. You're going to have some imaging. You're going down that road now. And so sometimes they'll do surgical reconstruction. Sometimes you can work on building stability and proprioception around it with everything you do have. Um, but yeah, that's, that's essentially what a grade three is. Yeah. And like when you, the way you'll experience that, everything that we talked about that David talked about in grade two about kind of the, the bruising and the swelling and the pain with weight bearing is all just severe at that point. So when it was kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a little bit swollen. It's moderately swollen. This is like, boom, my ankle blows up and I can barely put weight on my foot because it hurts so bad. <laughs> um, I think something I wanted to mention in this realm is uh, when you have pain where it's hard to bear weight on your leg for more than like a step or two, um, it's probably worth uh, going in to get some radiographs to clear out a fracture because when you have the inversion ankle sprain, yes, the ligaments more likely tear first, but the bones can also fracture. A lot of times it's the, the fibular, the fibula, the fibular head down there um, or the, the styloid process, the fibula. Wow. <laughs> Sunday night, whatever. Um, and so a lot of times, uh, if it's severe enough and that would be the bone that would give way something to also consider in that, if you can't bear weight, sometimes going in for x-rays right away, isn't necessarily the best idea either, because in those first three days, because of all of the swelling, uh, they miss the fracture on x-rays. So if, if you went in the day of your fracture, you'd probably have to go back in a week anyway to get it imaged again. So if you can't, man, yeah, go ahead. And it can also, it can take up to two weeks for a fracture to show up on a plain film, on a plain a radiograph, so x-ray. Yeah, and one of, the, one of the reasons why is when you look at a film and you see the increased density of bone <laughs> and, it's, and it's this white, clean, kind of white gray figure, the inflammation looks the same way and it just makes it super cloudy and, and hard to look at anything. So that that's the reason why. Yeah. So if you're in this point where you can't really bear weight, I would start seeking some, some care right away just to have them walk you through the steps. So I know our clinic does this. I'm sure there's lots of them who do free consultations. 
that would be the perfect opportunity to go to a PT clinic, say, Hey, I just had a really bad ankle sprain, have them look at it. Um, and then get their guidance on when should I go in for x-rays? And if it's a free consult, you're not losing out on anything anyway. Um, I don't know if that happens out by you guys in California much, but I don't know if either of your clinics. Much. Okay. Uh, Everyone should move I, to the Midwest. We do nice things for people. Typically not as, <laughs> not as common out in, in Los Angeles area, but it depends on where you are. So I've worked at a couple clinics, especially specifically through Kaiser, um, where we, we can have drop-ins like that, but it just depends on the location that you're, you're at. Yeah. Yep. And, and at that point, um, it kind of brings us to the question of like, okay, if I've sprained my ankle to the point where I can't go running and, oh, sorry, you know, time frame for these grade threes is going to vary depending on how many ligaments are involved. Um, DJ talked about, there's different options for management, sometimes surgical. I would say most of the people that I have worked with, do not get surgery. Obviously they're coming to PT. I would say yeah. it's more common in that realm. And it can, it can be a full month before you start thinking about getting back to, to yeah. any sort of impact it's going to take. And that, and that means literally like stopping running, actually stopping running. I feel like runners don't runners are like, Oh, I'll, I'll take a break, which means that they only run 20 miles a week. <laughs> no, but like, this is one of those things where it's like no running for, for a month. Um, the impact. And you got to also be careful with some forms of cross training. Cause a lot of, I, I'm certainly one that will get really aggressive with that. Cause I will go stir crazy, but some of these things, especially with these severe grade threes, you got to be really careful with, and we're not trying to scare you just, we've had experience where some people do great. And some people was like, yeah, you need to get this checked. It's maybe a little bit more serious. So if it's, yeah. if this is really that serious, you cannot wait bear and you're having, you know, you just need to get checked by a professional if it's getting that bad. Don't, yeah. don't wait that out. You may not need yeah. imaging, right? So the, we all go, I usually go by something called the Ottawa ankle rules. We won't necessarily go into, but it, we just, I've had, we've had enough experiences where, and we're not trying to scare you that like, there might be a fracture here. And if something's broken and that doesn't heal the right way, that's where things get a little concerning. So sometimes better safe than sorry. So just be careful and know if it's really blown up, you might want to get it checked out and you need to talk with the health professional that you work with and have them be honest with you about how long it's going to take. And that means don't go pick up some crazy new form of exercise because you need to make sure you're on the right path. So ask them about cross-training opportunities as well, if that's appropriate. Yeah. So you're, you're looking at those just to kind of sum up everything we just talked about. You have the ligaments on the outside of the ankle, which are like David said, more than 90% of the time, those are the ones that are going to be involved in ankle sprain grades one, two, and three, which increase in severity time to come back goes from days for grade one to maybe one to two weeks for grade two. And then grade three, you're looking at a good month before you're getting back to, to starting to run again. Um, and so in the meantime, I think we talk about what do you do to maintain what you have and what things are safe to participate in, in terms of keeping your ankle healthy. So I feel like right now the, the person who has this on their mind the most is David because he's doing those things because he just ran for the first time today. Um, but why don't you tell us, and then we're going to go into high ankle sprain for just, for just a second, but why don't you tell us kind of some, what are some tips for what people could be doing to manage their acute symptoms of their ankle sprains? Yeah. I mean, it might seem counterintuitive, but Klein alluded to this earlier and it's like early weight bearing, early mobilization, get on that thing, get it moving. That's going to be huge. Otherwise that inflammation, it's going to pull up more. It's going to get stiffer. It's probably going to hurt more. 
and and you're just going to be less and less willing to do things so just early mobilization just go and get it done um yes matt yes it also makes it easier on the healthcare practitioner or the rehab professional <laughs> they're working on because i can tell you with the people that are like oh my gosh i'm not i haven't moved this and they're they like keep themselves they're like stuck and they won't use it it's way harder to treat those and it takes way longer because everything, the joint stiffens up, the muscles start to contract, you start losing more strength, you start losing more mobility. It, it takes longer. We're not trying to scare you, but, and don't, oh, but again, also on the other side, don't overdo it, right? You need to keep moving within a, within a t- well, relatively tolerable level. So early mobilization is key, but within an appropriate amount. What would be an example of what early mobilization an early weight bearing would be for someone who's in that kind of grade two to three realm. Like what are, what are some options for people, David? Totally. I mean, it depends on the severity of it, but I mean, if it genuinely hurts to just put weight on it, you can do something as simple as go to your counter, support some of the weight on your hands and just gradually shift weight back and forth and just get used to putting some weight on it. Just start there. It does help. Don't, it helps yeah, a like, lot. This is yeah. called graded exposure. Yeah. Another great one is, well, walking. Oh, weight shifting, yep. I mean, if you're able to walk and it doesn't aggravate your symptoms, walking. Mm-hmm. If you are able to do, yes, you can go. <laughs> walking normally, right? So as, as much as this doesn't feel good, going heel, toe, gently heel, toe, gait, right? Because that will maintain mobility, appropriate mobility of the ankle. If you're toe walking, it's, it's going to get stiff. So try to do that's not it. beneficial for you. Yeah. Right. Or try to walk as normally, planting. Yeah. normally yeah, as you possible. Normal. You want normal gait mechanics when you're walking. Um, well, I'll, I'll say one thing. I'll pull a client <clears throat> when people are often ask. people are often in their heads asking the question, well, it hurts. Is that causing damage? And I, th- I think that's something that I, I try to help people clarify in their heads. Cause let's say they're after surgery and they're like, well, you want me to do that, but it hurts. And so just, I think with ankle sprains, walking normally with pain can be to what you can tolerate. If you can walk with normal gait mechanics, but it's super painful, but you can get through it and walk normally, it's not causing more damage to the ligament. The question you have to ask is, is my pain worse tomorrow? Because if your pain is worsening tomorrow, you stress that structure too much, and then you just pull yourself back. Um, but you're not going to cause damage to the structure because you're not putting the same strain that was on it. So don't be afraid of, of walking with pain, um, because it's not causing damage. It's just, um, you just either tore that ligament or had a sprain of it. Yes, Matt. This is going to sound very odd and do not let me go on a tangent because I will. Uh, pain is not always an indicator of damage. It's your body's, it's your brain and your body's way of saying, I feel threatened. I'm worried something's going to happen. Yeah. Great. No, no tangent. That was great. Thank <laughs> I was you. I'm trying to be good about that. I could talk so, for like eight hours on that, but I won't. Let's talk about one last, and Matt, why don't you give us a, a really quick thing on this? You've heard the phrase high ankle sprains before. Um, why don't you just quick tell us about that ligament? what the sprain looks like and just kind of time frame for that, which is totally different than what yeah. we're talking about now. I'm actually going to introduce it, but I think I'm going to let David finish it. Cause I think that he's got the most experience right now <laughs> with this. So I'm sure that's, I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. Um, so high good. ankle sprains refer to where you're not affecting you. Sometimes you do, right? So these, sometimes this can be missed, 
but high ankle sprains refer to you are doing tissue damage up higher. So there's this tissue I alluded to called the interosseous membrane, which is a fibrous membrane that sits between the fibula, this bone and the tibia. And it's a very interesting tissue because it helps transfer force between the two areas. It creates stability, but you can certainly sprain that ligament. And oftentimes with high ankle sprains, there's not uncommon to have fractures in that area too. Um, this is very different because this tissue heals very differently. And because it's so important in weight bearing can cause a lot more discomfort. Unfortunately, these are frequently missed because when people sprain stuff, this one usually hurts so much. They don't think about this one until they, this starts to calm down. This has been going on a little bit longer. David, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of passive structures in our body that have different levels of connective tissue, whether it's fascia, whether it's ligaments, tendons, muscles. Um, but there are passive structures that hold our bones together. And there are some that help break up shock absorption, some that provide some elasticity. The interosseous membrane does a lot of that. And so it, it's lined in between the fibula and the tibia. Tibia is your big shin bone. Fibula is the little shaft looking one that comes down the side. In between, you have that membrane. That's what I was trying to show. So this is actually a map of arteries, but it's in there. And so you can see that little white sheet in between the tibia and fibula there. And it runs down the whole length of it, but distally, which means farther away from the center of your body there, that's where it can get aggravated. But you also have these things called retinaculum and you've got them sprinkled throughout your body, whether it's an aponeurosis here or in the elbow and the foot and the ankle. Um, I just had an awesome one. Here we go. And in the ankle, you have the superior and inferior regions. And so I was just looking at it. There we go. So this is our inferior extensor retinacula. It helps hold all those tendons down and prevents any bowstringing if there's any tears or any fraying of the leg or the tendons there. This is the superior one. And by bowstringing, bowstringing means like the, the, the tendons, if they're not secured down by these things, will actually like pop out. Yes. The kind of importance. And then just, just for orientation here, that's your lateral malleolus. So that's, that's the fancy way of saying your ankle bone on the outside. So in a high ankle sprain, the damage is actually above that. Normally it's below. That's your, a your ATFL, your CFL back here. That's where most people are going to get it. In high ankle sprains, it's actually above. And so it can be to the interosseous membrane. It can be to the retinacula. It can be to pretty much any of those passive structures up there. But the healing time is drastically different because you put so much load through the tibia and fibula. And since they're absorbing the shock of you landing and doing things and the vibration of putting something down on it, that can cause a lot of pain. And it's probably like if you've ever played fantasy football before and you have a running back that got a high ankle sprain and you don't know when he's coming back to the field and they just keep putting the injury report and injury report and then they have all the practices and sometimes they don't come back for three or four weeks because of this. And so it can take time. Even sometimes, I would say even like months. six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Eight sometimes weeks. it's half the yeah. season. High ankle it's sprains like, take longer to heal again, just summarize because often because they, you can get away with the, some of the lower ones. Cause it's not as, you don't have to worry as much about shock absorption. These ones can take a little longer just because of that, depending of course, what you did in the severity. So I think here's here for me is the big crux with high ankle sprains and why it's so important to be able to 
to kind of suss out if it is a high ankle sprain versus a lower ankle sprain. And Matt, if you want to hold up your, your model. Yeah. So when you look at the, the ankle model, you have the big ankle bone, the talus that kind of sits under there. And then you have the tibia and the fibula that sit around it. And if you put weight through that, it's going to produce a force that would spread the tibia and fibula apart, right? And so that ligament that we're talking about with the high ankle sprains that gets is involved, it just holds it together so that the tibia and fibula don't spread apart from one another. So we talked about what are you supposed to do after a low ankle sprain? Early weight bearing and mobilization. What are you supposed to do after a high ankle sprain? Not necessarily early weight bearing. It might be non-weight bearing for a little while or very limited because you have to allow that to heal because if you put weight on it, you could be causing damage to the structure that was torn depending on its severity. And this is why if you're having a hard time weight bearing, you should go see somebody who can do some tests because if you came to see one of us, we'd be able to do a bunch of tests that could determine, is this a high ankle sprain? In which case you are not going to weight bear. You might be immobilized for a little while to allow some healing depending on the severity. Whereas if we can rule that out, we say, get walking. But if you get walking, it's a high ankle sprain, you could be setting yourself back. And if you avoid walking because you think it might be a high ankle sprain, but it's not, you're also setting yourself back. So True. having, go in and see somebody because it, it, I, at that point, I think the point to go in is I'm having a really hard time putting weight through my foot. Go in and see somebody. Go in and see somebody. It's worth it because they're going to be able to help you really determine is it What's the best course? Is the best course early weight bearing? Is the best course holding off? And this is, and that's the only, really the big reason why I wanted to bring it up because it's a huge difference in what you do acutely and it can set you back one way or the other. Yep. So I definitely take care of these early. I think some of the challenges people that kind of like that are in it, like people that are in a serious situation and they're just waiting and waiting. And the longer you're waiting, the more pro like potential problems there are. And then there's the opposite side of some people come in, they've got a mild thing and, and our job is just go, Hey, you need to get moving. You're going to be okay. Just keep moving on this. You'll be back running in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Like just need to maintain your strength. You're fine, but just yep. get, get checked. Cause you don't want to leave this up to chance. Yep. All right. Um, <clears throat> oh, I can say one last thing then I'll transition us. Who should you go get checked by? Um, most likely your best place to go is going to be one of two places. It would be straight to a physical therapist or to an orthopedist. Um, like we said, if it's acute, I think a lot of times, and there's, this is nothing against, um, urgent care practitioners. They just don't specialize in orthopedics. And so you would be able to have a little bit more insight, even going to a PT that doesn't have access to x-rays on that day, especially if you don't need them. Um, then you would go into urgent care because they um, they probably won't be able to suss out exactly if it's lower versus higher. And then if it's early, they'll take x-rays that won't mean anything because it could be hidden. So, you know, my recommendation would be go straight to a PT. A lot of places have direct access, meaning you can go without a referral or go see an orthopedist straight away. Make sure you go see an ortho PT. Yeah, ortho PT. Yep. Thank you. Okay. We're going to transition to our next segment. This is the part that is uh, inspired by Halim. Um, and we're going to talk about this topic of do running shoes cause injury and how do we know? So we'll kind of kick this off with his question and then we'll kind of dive into that, that big question of um, do running shoes cause injury and how do we, how do we know? 
he wrote to us, he said, I just got back into running. And when I got my first pair of shoes, I was advised to run in stability shoes. So the first proper pair was the Arahi 4, which is actually a really nice shoe, side note. I ran 300 plus kilometers, but one thing I got from it was runner's knee, which happened very often. Now I've geared up to the Kiona 28 based on recommendations. It feels flat and takes a lot of energy to run in them. Is that, uh, is that what maximum stability shoes should feel like? Or is this my legs? Or am I not rent meant to run in them in the first place? So that's kind of what he wrote to us. And I think that I think we should kind of hit that topic of how do, because I think he's running with the assumption here that his, there's so many questions we could ask him and we're not going to be able to actually answer his question directly to him, but I think there's a lot we could talk about. So for you guys, when you have somebody come in to see you who has knee pain, runner's knee pain, what are some of the potential causes of that knee pain for a new runner? This is a new runner. And do you, do you jump to shoes as the first thing that could be causing pain? So, so hold on. You want me to go through the list? How much? Time Not, no, 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 no. Give, give me an, give an idea. Crash course. Keep it brief. Let's let, let's let DJ go. Cause I think he's got it. <laughs> I mean, it could be so many things, especially if you're a new runner. I mean, nine times out of 10, these injuries are due to an overuse injury of some kind. Or you're just not Chances are, anything. if you started running when you got the Arahi 4, you put 300K on it, that's going to be approximately, I mean, what is that, like 100 and something miles? I'm, I'm off right now. Yeah, yeah like oh, 1.8, yeah. roughly 180 or so yeah. miles. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's enough mileage to put on your legs if you're a new runner for something to just come up in general if you haven't worked on stability or strength conditioning leading up to this. Um, I mean, we can go down the whole laundry list of whether or not there's hip or ankle instability, yada, 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 putting extra shearing on the knee. We, we don't need to go into that, but, um, chances are it's probably an overuse thing. Wasn't quite ready to be taking on the task that they were taking on. I don't think I would immediately go to the shoes per se. Um, now the Arahi four does have a little bit more of a rocker on it. Maybe it shifts the load up to the, the hip and the knee a little bit more causing a little bit more tension to like that patellar ligament sure i don't know but um i think the main thing we need to look at is just habits and activity level and and conditioning before even putting those shoes on before even running 300 kilometers yeah now what do you what are your kind of big picture thoughts here me yeah you all right just got permission now um it again the answer as always and my students hate me for this is it depends um, I think hearing that he's already put 300 kilometers on them makes me go, I'm not kind of, then it pops up, makes me not as worried. Whereas if he's like, I just got the shoes and I'm now just suddenly having pain in them, that would be more of an indicative factor. When we're assessing somebody new, there's a whole laundry list of variables that we're looking at. And you kind of have to, to ask yourself, yeah, you know, all of them could be contributing, but which one is probably the most significant if he's put that many miles on that, that probably makes me not as concerned. It makes me think more along the lines of, you know, again, as, as DJ mentioned, training, did you have any big changes in your training in terms of like, did you suddenly start doing something new, putting speed work in or jump your mileage up too much? Or what, is there anything else that changed? DJ, what? Oh, no, I just wanted to add too. if you're approaching 300 K, I mean, if that's what, what, what's a three K 1.9, 1.8, yeah, 1.8. Yeah, you're right. You're right. 180, 180, 190 miles. You're starting to approach the life of a shoe anyways. Yeah. 
I mean, if the industry standard's a little past 200 to 350, you know, um, or 250, 300, there's a chance that it's starting to deform a little bit more. Maybe there's a little bit more wear in certain areas and the geometry of it's changing. There's so many factors by the time you hit 300 kilometers that I don't think it's the shoe. Or you might need a new pair, right? Which sometimes yeah. people will switch in just the act of changing the surfaces that they're running on, which maybe the shoe makes them feel better for a little bit. But don't always assume that's the biggest thing. You might just need, again, it might just be, and we know from, there is plenty of evidence suggests that, or not plenty, but there's emerging evidence suggests that having a couple different pairs of shoes is better in terms of reducing your risk of, it may reduce risk of injury just because it's like almost like cross training. But again, based on what he's telling me, it telling us it's not the first thing I would look at. However, new runners who maybe have been told like they're, they're running in a not so good pair of shoes. Like they're like something like a pair of vans, not to talk terrible about vans because they used to make really good, serious running shoes. You know, if they're running in a pair of vans, like, okay, this might not be, yeah. People used to like race in vans. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Converse is a big company for that. Yeah. Bach is sad that that's not the case anymore. I know, right? Vans, come on. Like you guys can do this. Let's see this. Um, But you know, I lost my train of thought. All right. Where was I? I don't know. Converse were racing in a newer that's, runner, that's in a newer runner, that might be something I'm thinking about, but you also have to recognize that running is a high impact activity. The injury rates, right? Percentages per year of like is like like almost like 50 to 90% of runners can get injured. That 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 there's a lot of evidence on that and it kind of varies, but there's a fairly high injury rate. And one of the reasons is it's a high impact activity, and you need to make sure. You are strong enough and in shape enough to do this, right? Running is not something that you do to get in shape. You need to be in shape to run. That's very important. So, you you, you know, if you're going to run, there's some things you need to work on. Strength, mobility, all this kind of stuff. And that's why people usually end up in our offices. But shoes is a factor, but it's not always going to be the biggest factor unless you've given us evidence to suggest that it was enough of a change and sudden enough to go, oh, maybe we should look at this. But hearing that, I'm not... That's not putting off as many red flags for this. Right. I think um, uh, just to kind of reiterate some of the things that you guys said, when somebody comes into our office, there are, we have a list of different potential causes for (laughs) differential diagnosis and potential causes for that. And shoes is one of the factors, but there are only a few cases where that really sticks out as the cause. So, you know, our, our evaluations are going to include conversations about your training volume, changes in your training volume, meaning how many times a week, how long you're running, how far you're running, how fast you're running. And is that stuff changing? It's going to be talk. It's going to be looking at specific range of motion deficits that you might have. It's going to be looking at strength that you may have deficits in. And those are going to be the primary things that we look at in terms of pain causes. Shoes will be one of the questions we ask about because like Matt referenced, if you are a runner and you have not had pain and then you buy a new pair of shoes and then you develop pain that's consistent with the type of shoe you got, like let's say you never ran in a posted shoe, you got a posted shoe and then you get midfoot pain or like lateral knee pain. You're like, okay, those make sense with each other. So it's probably the shoe switch back to what you were used to. But it, most of the time, maybe that, and especially when it's kind of when he used the phrase runner's knee, so we don't actually know what he's talking about for exactly. But if it's this kind of vague knee pain, being able to tie that to a shoe type is actually difficult. 
but certain types of foot pain, you know, depending on the type of shoe, it's easier to tie to the shoe than something like knee pain. So, um, the shoe. How do you know? It's got to be probably. The, the shoe can certainly, I would say it may be able to influence it, but being a direct cause, again, that you got to look at all the variables there. Right. So I think the reality kind of going back to that main question, yes, running shoes can cause injury. Um, but how do you know? It's usually when you are, are consistent in one type of shoe and you have an, a change in your shoe and then the pain comes immediately and it's consistent with that change of shoe type. Um, the other thing he talked about was um, the Kyono 28 feeling flat. I feel like that's just the Kyono 28. <laughs> no, wait, wait, no, no, no trash on the Kyono 28. I think David, you had a pair. Nathan, did you have a pair? No, <laughs> I gave, I gave mine to, yeah, Nathan I gave mine to handle posted shoes like that. The Kiano series is a very heavily cushioned and a very heavy shoe. And some people really like that. They do very well in that shoe type. That's fine. Um, other people that haven't run in a shoe that that's heavy, it can feel a little sluggish. Um, I know that I, I enjoyed it for walking for me. I prefer lighter shoes. So it wasn't my favorite shoe, um, for that reason. They did a lot of very interesting things with that shoe in terms of some new age stability methods, but it's still heavy. And so there's some people who have been wearing the Kiana their whole life and they're used to that, but that's a, that's a factor that you need to put in, that you need to take into account. If you're, if you put a shoe on. And you're like, everything feels good, but it's just way too heavy. You might need to consider changing, right? Because that's going to affect your comfort. And we know that comfort can like discomfort can also lead to an injury risk. So you just want to make sure that the shoe is comfortable throughout. So the Kiana 28 for you may not be appropriate for that reason. Yeah. So one other, one last thing I'm going to add, and then I'm going to transition us to the next question. I think uh, a lot of times we over... Uh, value footwear and which might sound weird coming from us because we talk about shoes all the time that's a lot of what, what our platform is this is but, totally true by the way yeah but when you actually look at our lives and our day-to-day -day, our day-to-day -day talking about shoes with our patients is extremely low um, and that's because shoes are fun and they are important but they're just one small piece of the puzzle and I think as runners it's easy for us to try to find the quick fix to our problem. And so it's easy to blame a shoe. And I'm not saying this to Helene, that's not, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm trying to say, sometimes it's easy to blame a shoe for our problem because if you can just switch the shoe, it's a quick fix and then you go. It's kind of like, oh, give me the pill to like fix whatever problem instead of doing the hard work. And so a lot of times pain is caused by other influences which just take a lot more hard work. It's worth doing the hard work. Um, and again, this is not towards Helene at all. I'm just saying, I think it's easy for us to do that and, um, worth considering when you're trying to figure out issues, my problem, am I not getting enough? Do I not have the good enough fuel, you know, like whatever it is. So shoes are tools. And we say this all the time. They're not magic though, right? If you've got some problem switching a shoe might, might help with it, but there's something, there may be something else going on that you address strength movement, something. So, you know, don't let the shoe be a bandaid. Make sure that you also are addressing whatever happened, right? Like an example I can give is like, I, I, uh, strained my calf and Achilles a couple months ago and I switched and I was running in the wave rider and I was able to run through that pain and it healed. But even though I switched shoe to allow me to keep running, 
it didn't mean that I was, wasn't working on the calf. I was working like crazy on it, trying to maintain mobility. I was trying to like get it through the, the, the phases of healing. I was doing strength stuff to still work on. Even though I was using that shoe to help me, I wasn't like, I'm just going to let the shoe do it. It's like, no, no, it can, that can be a tool, but it's not the only one. So don't just switch between shoes because that's, you know, to be honest with you, that's, one of the reasons this website was started in the first place i'm gonna to be totally honest when i was like before pt school because i was like oh this starts i just switch shoes and i just keep going that and i'm trying to find this perfect shoe but then i was actually in pt school and realized yeah that's not how that works like i still want to start yeah. this thing to educate people but you if you just keep switching them you may be missing a bigger problem right yeah perfect Okay, we are transitioning to our final segment tonight, uh, which was um, inspired by Daniel Kramer. And the big picture question is, when does it make sense to get super shoes? Um, super shoes, we could argue about def defining super shoes, but we're, looking, we're talking about carbon plated racers with a fancy foam. That's what we'll start with. Um, and his question specifically was, at what pace does it make sense to run in a super shoe slash carbon plated shoe or the nylon endorphin speed. I've read somewhere that it only makes sense at high paces, but then I wonder why is there something like the Bondi X and he had more to his question, but he's kind of asking this question. Does it make sense for someone who's running a five hour marathon, a four hour marathon, a three hour marathon to run in one of these shoes? Is there a cutoff point? Is it, Oh, if you're running under a three fifteen marathon or an hour and a half, you know, is there a cutoff point when it makes sense that you actually get a benefit? Do we know that? Um, and what's up with the Bondi X? Those are, those are basically his questions. So that last away, one's guys. a very good question. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like Nathan got a pair. I really want to try them, but I also have the same question. Like what? you can read my review and I kind of went deep into my, yep. into thoughts on that, but Anyway, why don't you, what do we know about who benefits from these and what does benefit mean? That is a very, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm going to reference an article by McClode et al. Um, that I love to reference, but there's plenty of other studies on there. And this is one that was part of Jared Ward and they were using some of the Saucony shoes, specifically the Endorphin Pro to test this out. And so there has been, thank you, David. There has been some suggestion that people that are running faster tend to benefit more from these shoes, but that's not always true. And so what we do know is that different people respond to different stiffnesses of, of shoes. And what plates really do is they're, they're not magic. I'm going to say this again. Plates are not magic. The purpose of them is to stiffen the sole of a shoe, right? So if I have a shoe that doesn't have a plate, it's more, not always, but it's more likely to have a lot of flexibility here versus something that has one, I can't do that. Okay. So it stiffens the ride. There's some requirements that need to change in the shoe if you do that. But the thing is, each person is also different. Some people based on the mechanics of their foot, based on some of the muscle tuning, all that kind of stuff. Some of them do like they put the, the right force into the right place in the plate and they do really, really well. Other people don't. Other people actually run better in shoes that don't have plates. And that's the fact is people respond better to different levels of stiffness and kind of regardless of pace. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily ask the question, what pace is appropriate for using these shoes? And, and Nathan, remind me, was this for 
a certain distance or is this all distances? Um, he had written, he's trying to break an hour and a half, half marathon. Half marathon. Um, but I, he was asking in general, he was not in general. He was okay. not. Yep. So one of the things that guides us on this is really, if you find these shoes really comfortable for you, that may be an indicator that they might do well for you, but if they're uncomfortable, don't waste your time. You'll find shoes that are much more flexible that you may do better at. And when and, you talk about the comfort, um, that means do well for you in terms of injury, correct? Yeah. No, I not mean, in yeah. terms of performance. Uh-uh. I'm not talking about how fast is, I'm not talking about how fast it because how comfortable is it to have this on your foot and run in it, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're doing longer distance, like half full marathon, you better make sure this is comfortable the whole time. You know, I think all, all three of us have talked about, yeah, we get these carbon plated shoes, but would we all run an entire marathon in them? Not always, right? Sometimes you just want to make sure you can finish the race. So, and that's going to help you more. So I would say, I'm not sure there's a specific pace because there's also, even among the elite crew, people who don't do well in these. So it's not, in the, not necessarily, yeah, go for I, it. There's also, the go ahead, dude. yeah, I've also I got an argument against plates, but. I think there's just a much bigger question to be asked because even if you look at four foot stiffness, I think that's, that's not the whole question here. Um, I mean, you can look at P-backs versus carbon. You can look across 10 different companies making a carbon plated shoe. The stiffness is going to be different in every single one of them. I don't, I don't think it's stiffness necessarily what the, the bulk of this question is. It's, I think it's, can you benefit from using a shoe? And a large part of that's going to be comfort. I mean, your wife did 50 miles in an alpha fly. So, but some people can't do 10. So it's going to be a matter of what you are able to do and what is comfortable for you for the long haul and plate, no plate geometry, no geometry. Like I think the Metaspeed Sky is a great shoe, but I can't stand wearing it. And there's people that have uh, exactly. Well, you just held up the Mizuno uh, Wave. Uh, is it the universe? What was that, that is the oh, universe version. Yeah. Three. So, and there's people that run marathons in those shoes comfortably and do not like the shoes that are coming out now. So I don't think it's necessarily a matter of stiffness. I mean, stack height, geometry, sole, width of the platform. Some people love Hoka's just because of the wide platform and some people can't stand them because of the wide platform. Something as simple as that can, can do that. Sorry, I'll let you go. And just to emphasize what David just said, and I'm going to say it so that people send hate toward me, but that's how it goes. Uh, Hoop Gamer at all. Um, the, I forget what um, university he's out of. Did a very interesting study recently where they cut the plate in the Vaporfly and did uh, economy testing, just like efficiency testing in runners and found that when they cut the plate, it didn't change the efficiency of using that shoe meaning any of the performance benefit was exactly the same, even if they cut the plate in half. So there are other factors. And again, that's going to depend on the person. There are other factors as well that contribute to what may or may not be a performance benefit. And when they say, again, I'm going to use the 4% as a great example, that 4% is an average. That's what they don't, that they don't really like talk about is some people did like, they put those shoes on and they did, their, their performance, so their, their efficiency improved, not performance necessarily, improved by 10%. Other people actually got worse by 10%. Like they were running worse and their performance, their economy suffered and their performance suffered. So can some people benefit from these? Yes. Everyone? No. 
I think part of his question is asking that question, can it help you run a faster marathon um, as an independent factor? And I have a question for you guys. I don't have an answer to this. Mm -hmm. Have any of the studies that have looked at running economy um, had runners run at different, at slower paces? Or is it, you know, has it been all elite runners who have ran at their paces or have they had people running at a nine minute mile, eight minute mile and seen, <laughs> seen if there are any differences? DJ's dying over there. Sorry. I don't, I can't um, think of any at the top of my head. There, DJ, can you think of that? I can't think of any. There, there are, they're all under wraps. That's all okay. I'll say on the matter. It, I mean, it is going to change it. Right? <laughs> the, like loading, right? So if you, if you are running faster, you're more likely to put more, you're putting more forward momentum and the angle of force of the plate is going to change quite a bit versus if you're running slower, right? You're, you know, depending on body weight, you, you can still put a high level of force to the ground, but it's going to depend heavily on, can you tolerate that? Does your foot like the stiffness? So can somebody running a five hour marathon benefit? Maybe but it depends on, is that comfortable for five hours? That's the bigger question I ask is you're wearing something for five hours. Is a plated shoe comfortable for you and for five hours? I don't even know if a plate necessarily is the thing to look at here because you can look at the midsole as well. So you can look at say an EVA composed Rocket X. You can look at a light strike slash boost uh, Addy Zero Pro. You can look at the PBAX Vaporfly and or Puma Deviate Nitro Elite. You can look at the infused EVA of the what, Hyper Burst from Skechers. I believe, uh, what's it? Fuel Cell as well from New Balance. Um, the midsoles are all different. There's different there's so many differences between these shoes. I think it just comes down to comfort and what you like. I mean, all these companies do studies internally to look at different flex points and at what point is optimal for the shoe as far as torque and flexion points and what they want out of the shoe. They fine tune that to what they feel is important, but that's not gonna be necessarily widespread amongst the masses. So some people are gonna love it, whether it's a four hour marathoner or a 210 marathoner they could both love the same shoe equally for racing. Um, so I, I think the bigger question is just comfort with the whole concoction uh, that is the shoe. I would also yeah. note that, that please, these are not magic. And yes, that there are, for a lot of people, there's a very clear economy improvement and like efficiency improvement, but you also got to realize that it changes load. And so whenever you change things really quickly, that can be a risk for injury. So these are not going to bulletproof you. So if you go, Hey, I just bought this going to run my marathon or half marathon. I'm in tomorrow. I wouldn't do that. Right. So in terms of publicly available studies, I just pulled up the, the official 4% study, um, by hoot gamer. Uh, but he had, it was 18 high caliber athletes and they did their paces at 14, 16, and 18 kilometers per hour, which I believe 14 is like a 650 per mile. Is yep. that true? Am I making that? It's did I do that? 12 miles 14, an hour would be five flat. What What was it? 14 kilometers 14 an hour? 14 kilometers, which I have 6.9 That's about six something pace, maybe five. Yeah, miles. so sub seven pace. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they've, they haven't really dipped down that slow in that study. So... I, 
there's space for companies to release that to the public if if they feel I, the reason companies will go to like a third party. I think if you learn from Nike, it's a mark. It's going to be a marketing thing ultimately because if you're if you have this independent study that's looking at what actual runners do in these shoes, I can't imagine that people wouldn't want to go buy the one that's shown the work for them. You know, for the people in the eight to ten to 12 minute per mile pace. If you have a shoe that's, <laughs> that is showing some of those differences, it's already working with the 4% study on, you know, anyway. And I, and I think the McLeod study just showed too that people are going to respond so differently to different stiffnesses and rockers and stacks and all that stuff. And so unless you have a VO2 max testing system <laughs> at your fingertips, you won't know which shoe is the best one for you. And so that's why for us, we care about people getting injured we think the fastest runner is the one that can finish the marathon or 5k and so um that's step one obviously <laughs> don't Sometimes be able to run it's it it's just a war of attrition right if you look at i saw an interesting chart the other day uh showing the paces or the the time that of the of the tokyo marathon podium and the top 10 or 15 and then looking at what they ran what their PR is and the gap between the PR. And most of them are probably six, seven minutes back from their PR at Tokyo. Molly Seidel was two and a half minutes back. It was attrition. She just hung in there and got herself a bronze medal. And that was heat too, right? Yeah. Like and so like, was that the shoe or was that her? That was most definitely her. Like, yeah she was so, awesome we'd like to especially give her a shout out since she has i think like reposted us on instagram at one point and that was like oh my gosh oh yeah we're, we're big molly she, fans here she big shared energy. my she when i made the video on the on that on the deviate nitro elite she shared it on her stories and i felt so famous this is only when she was an olympic qualifier not even a medalist and now i'm like this is this is the best day of my life just kidding um Good. Well, these were great topics. Want to thank again, want to thank Halim and Daniel for sending these questions. Reminder to all you guys, we're super thankful that you guys help us um, kind of continue this to move forward. And we want to be able to provide thoughts and education on things that you guys care about. So please drop us questions, um, shoot us private messages. That's the best way for us to log them. Um, if you want to post them down below, that's fine too. And we'll try to add them to our, to our list that we've got running. Um, but since Bach did not give us a, uh, a sign off kind of thing yet, we're just going to, what is a script? That's the word I'm looking for. Oh, we're I, just going to have to the viewers. You do not a sign off, but a question if they want to answer it. Oh, I was, yeah. I was scared. You're going to do the, if this is a, what, and I was like, Oh no, 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 no. We'll do this. What, what's your question? question we always go on a debate on certain shoes and obviously they're all running shoes but are they lifestyle can you rock it out in the world totally fine and it and it flows with the outfit so my question for the viewers on cloud boom lifestyle or no let us know below perfect um again and thanks again it would it, on top of that if you have additional lifestyle shoe that you rock as a running shoe or like if you have additional running shoe rock as a lifestyle shoe i'm not allowed to talk anymore comment <laughs> below let us know it's we really love late that. on a sunday we told just insider info to everybody we said to matt about like him talking about the new x step that he's testing you're like 
you got 15 seconds to so just tell yeah. them what tell them what you're testing and then he went on for probably five minutes it's amazing yeah, I did. anyway so uh thanks again to you guys for following us it's been a blast this last year the growth that we've seen in terms of our reach um has been kind of unreal to us and we take that seriously we want to responsibly use the platform so um, we're going to continue to try to do that the best we can and be responsible with the information that we're passing to you all. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Obviously, if you're listening on our podcast, you can find that wherever podcasts are found. And then we have obviously this YouTube channel if you're watching there as well. So uh, continue to keep up with what we're doing. Feel free to drop us a message and we'd love to get to your questions. We'll see you at the next round table. <laughs>